There are some people in your life that you may not know very well at all, but they have a great impact on your life. You may meet them once or twice, but that impact from that brief encounter is deeply impressed upon your mind. I've only met Johnny Erickson Tata on a few occasions. I interviewed her for It Is Written Television. But the imprint that she left on my life is remarkable. The fingerprints that she left on my soul are there even to this day. Johnny Erickson Tata was paralyzed in a diving accident, and today she's a quadriplegic. She is paralyzed from her neck down. She can't use her hands. She can't use her feet. Somebody has to feed her. Somebody has to brush her teeth. Somebody has to put her blouse on and button it. But she's a sought-after speaker, a talented musician, a gifted orator. She's a world-renowned mouth artist. And I remember one of the first times I met her, I sat in her office. And she was doing pencil sketches. And I was putting the different colored pencil into her mouth. And I said, what's the most difficult thing for you, uh, Johnny, on the pencil sketching? And she said, it's the taste of the pencil. She said, I get so, I have to hold it so tight in my mouth that as I hold it, it tastes so ugly. When you look at her paintings, they are some of the most, and pictures, they're some of the most beautiful that you have ever seen. She's also a talented musician. She sings. She is an unusually bright woman, a radio personality. On one occasion, I was talking to her about divine healing, and we discussed why God didn't heal her. And she said, you know, Mark, early in my life, after I had gotten the accident, she had, was in the accident when she was in her late teens, she said, many people came to me and said, oh, Johnny, if you just had more courage, you would be healed. If you just had more faith, you would be healed. And she said, I, I had faith, I had courage, I believed for healing, but I was not healed. I believed, but my hands still wouldn't work. I believed, my feet still wouldn't go. I believed, but I still needed somebody to feed me and somebody to comb my hair and somebody to brush my teeth. And she said, then I discovered a magnificent truth in Mark chapter 1. And if you have your Bible, I'd like you to take it and turn to Mark chapter 1. Because what Johnny Erickson taught us, shared with me that day in her study, between sketches with her mouth pencil while she was doing her mouth art actually transformed my life in an understanding of divine healing. The setting in Mark chapter 1 is Capernaum. Jesus is there in Galilee. He touches the blind eyes and they're opened. He touches the deaf ears and they are unstopped. And gladness and joy sings through the land. Husbands have their wives who were dying and uh, on their deathbed restored to them. Parents see their little children dance and play again, and their palsied limbs are healed. Even Peter's mother, who was dying, feels the touch of Christ. Mark chapter 1, verse 29 and onward. Now, as soon as they had come out of the synagogue, they entered the house of Simon and Andrew with James and John. But Simon's wife's mother lay sick with a fever, and they told him about her at once. So he came and took her by the hand and lifted her up, and immediately the fever left her, and she served them. Verse 32, Now at evening, when the sun had set, they brought to him all who were sick and those who were demon-possessed. And the whole city was gathered together at the door, and he healed many who were sick with various diseases and cast out demons. 
As you see the story, hundreds, thousands were gathered there. And Jesus began his work of healing. It's one of the rare instances in the New Testament where Christ heals a whole village. And as that healing took place that day and as the sun set that night, that town was a happy place. The next morning, Jesus, according to verse 35, rose up a great while before day and he went out to pray. And while Christ was praying, Simon and many townspeople were searching for Christ. Verse 37, when they found him, they said to him, everybody is looking for you. In other words, Jesus, your medical missionary work has captured the attention of the whole town. Jesus, you are the most popular person around. Your fame has spread through all of Galilee. Jesus, look, there are children dancing in the streets. Jesus, look, husbands have been restored to their wives and wives to their husbands. Jesus, look, you've healed parents that are, have been aged and they're going to die. Jesus, you're the most popular person around. But there are more people yet to heal. There's a little boy over there. His arm is all withered, Jesus. He's waiting for healing. Jesus, there's a man over there. His ears are deaf. He's waiting for healing. Jesus, there's a, a woman born blind. She's waiting for healing. And the most amazing thing possible happens. All the people are waiting to be healed. And Jesus walks away. He does not heal one person that day. He leaves the blind standing there. He leaves the deaf with their hearing impaired. He leaves the dumb, and they still don't speak. He leaves those with withered arms and those shaking head to toe with a palsy. And the disciples are saying, Lord, they're all here. Lord, work your magic, work a miracle. And Jesus walks away. As Johnny Erickson Tata told me that story, she said, Pastor Mark, do you know why Jesus walked away? Why didn't he heal? The next verse, Mark chapter 1, verse 38 tells us, But he said to them, Let us go to the next towns, that I may preach there also, because for this purpose I've come forth. Jesus, the great medical missionary, did not primarily come forth to open blind eyes. He did not primarily come forth to open deaf ears. Jesus, the great physician, came forth as the minister of the soul. The overarching purpose of his life was to heal the soul as well as the body. Now, Ellen White comments on this amazing passage with these words. She says, Ministry of Healing, page 300, page 31, rather, in the excitement which then pervaded Capernaum, there was danger that the object of his mission would be lost sight of. Jesus was not satisfied to attract attention to himself as a wonder worker as a he or as a healer of physical disease. He was seeking to draw men to him as their savior. Jesus knew that if he stayed in Capernaum and healed, that his mission would be lost sight of. He was willing to sacrifice popularity as a physician. He was willing to walk away from the misunderstanding of who he was so he could get about his true mission. It is possible today that in the 21st century, a physician can become so busy with their practice that they miss their purpose. 
than the practice can overshadow the purpose. It's possible to become so busy today with ministering to the physical needs of men and women that we have little time to listen to their heart cry and minister to their spiritual needs. The true medical missionary physician understands that their overriding purpose, that the supreme goal of life is far more than physical healing. Jesus' goal was not to make healthy sinners who would live longer because he healed them to burn longer in the lake of fire. Jesus' goal was to minister to the soul as well as the body. His goal was not to make a name for himself. His goal was not to make an earthly fortune. His goal was not fame, position, a title. His goal, as Ellen White says in Councils on Diets and Foods, page 458 and 459, the object of the medical missionary work is to point sin-sick men and women to the man of Calvary who takes away the sin of the world. By looking to him, they will be changed into his likeness. We are to encourage the sin-sick, suffering men and women to look to Jesus and live. In your practice, do you sense as a great medical missionary physician that the purpose of your life and your calling is not simply to heal the body, but it's to touch the soul? Are you walking in the footsteps of the great physician? Jesus knew that if he continued the process of healing the body without touching the soul, men and women would die lost for all eternity. So as you read the Gospels, you discover this incredible truth, that often Jesus ministered to people spiritually, then he ministered to them physically. There were times that he ministered to them physically and then he ministered to them spiritually. The physical ministry and the spiritual ministry, the ministry to the body and the ministry to the soul could not be separated in the ministry of Jesus. As Jesus said about marriage, he says the same about the marriage of the ministry to the body and the ministry of the soul. Jesus said, what God has joined together, let no man put asunder. God has united the physical and spiritual ministries of life. Matthew, the ninth chapter, illustrates that magnificently. Matthew, chapter 9. And we look there at Matthew 9, verses 1 and onward. Here is a wonderful example of Jesus' total ministry to the spiritual as well as the physical and mental dimensions of human beings. Jesus says in Matthew chapter 9, verse 1, So he got into the boat and crossed over and came to his own city. And behold, they brought to him a paralytic on a bed. And Jesus, seeing their faith, incidentally, faith is something that you see. The Bible says Jesus, seeing their faith. Faith is not faith until it's transformed into action. Their faith was manifest as they brought the paralytic to Jesus. And Jesus said to the paralytic, Son, be of good cheer, your sins are forgiven you. And at once some of the scribes said within themselves, This man blasphemes. But Jesus, knowing their thoughts, said, Why do you think evil in your hearts? For which is easier to say, Your sins are forgiven you, or to say, Arise and walk. 
but that you may know that the Son of Man has power on earth to forgive sins. Then he said to the paralytic, Arise, take up your bed, and go to your house. Now, there are three great reasons in the New Testament for the miracles of Jesus. Did you notice the passage here where the Lord says, but that you may know that the Son of Man has power on earth to forgive sins? The healing of a palsied body was a deeper illustration of a palsied soul. The healing of blind eyes was an illustration that Jesus could open the eyes of the mind so we could see him. The healing of deaf ears was an illustration that Jesus could open the ears of the heart, mind, and soul so that we could hear the message of his grace and goodness. Jesus healed our feet so we could walk to him. He healed our hands so we could reach out to him. So there are three purposes of miracles. The first is redemption, the second is revelation, and the third is restoration. Jesus' miracles are illustrations of his redeeming grace. He heals the body as an illustration that we might know that he can forgive our sins. So every physical miracle is an illustration of redemption, that the one who healed us physically can heal us spiritually. Secondly, every physical miracle is an illustration of revelation. It is a revelation of how good God is. As Jesus walked among us, he revealed to us that God doesn't want us sick, that God wants us healthy. He revealed to us what God is like. Satan said God is unfair, God is unjust. Satan even says God's the cause of sickness. Jesus reveals in his healing ministry that God wants us in health. Beloved, above all things, I want you to prosper and be in health even as your soul prospers. So what's the purpose of miracles? First, redemption. Physical healing illustrates that God can heal you the soul. Second, revelation. Every miracle reveals the character of God and shows us his goodness and his grace. Thirdly, restoration. The miracles show that God wants us restored back to total health again. Jesus could not be content in seeing somebody suffering and somebody that was dying. Jesus' purpose was to restore them to health. So every miracle shows us redemption. Every miracle shows us a revelation of the character of God. And every miracle shows us that God wants us restored, body, mind, and spirit into his image. So the call to follow in the footsteps of Jesus is the call to link the healing ministry of Christ with a ministry to the soul. We see a portrait of Jesus in his healing ministry. We see the overriding purpose of his life. We get a glimpse of that overriding purpose of his life. Jesus was not content to let a woman touch the hem of his garment and walk away healed. He could have done that very easily. He was in the crowd. Here was a woman that had an issue of blood for years. She had gone to many physicians, and the Bible says she was not helped at all, but was only worse. But she touched the hem of his garment with the concentrated faith of her life. In the energy of Jesus, the life-giving love of divinity flowed through him and healed her instantly. Why did he say to the disciples, who touched me? Why did he say that? The disciples were surprised. They said, Lord, you're in the crowd and people are jostling you and you say, who touched me? Why did he say that? Why did he just let her go on into insignificance? Because he wasn't content to let her touch the hem of his garment and go on. Are you as a Christian physician content to let people touch the hem of Christ's garments? Oh, that physician is so kind. Oh, they are so loving. Oh, they are so capable and competent. 
Do you want to be known as a godly Christian physician? Or is there a step beyond that? Where the godly Christian physician uses his gifts as a bridge into the hearts and minds and soul. I can never walk in the footsteps of the great physician unless I reach out as the great physician to touch somebody for Jesus Christ. Now, there are three things about Jesus. I will never see patience through the eyes of Christ unless I understand the overarching purpose of Christ. Unless I understand that Jesus' ministry was not limited to the physical, but Jesus' ministry was focused on on a redemptive purpose, and it was focused not merely on healing people physically, but healing them mentally and spiritually and seeing them saved for the kingdom of God. Now, there's a second feature about Jesus' healing ministry. The first is his overruling purpose is redemption. But there's a second feature of the healing ministry of Jesus worthy of notice, and that's Jesus' abounding compassion. Jesus cared for people. He genuinely, authentically cared for people. People were not some just a blip on the radar screen of his mind. They weren't some, some statistic. One of the great dangers of modern medicine today is this. Most modern medical practitioners have very, very little time to spend with people. People come into the office, you're under pressure to get them in and out, seven minutes, eight minutes, ten minutes, and they're out. The woman who walks in going through the trauma of a divorce and gives you those signals. It's hard to spend time with her because there are five other people at the waiting room and some of them got kids on their lap and they're crying and you've got to get that woman in and out as quickly as possible. The teenager that comes in who's depressed and discouraged and is showing symptoms of migraine headaches and stomach ulcers who needs more than three and a half minutes and more than a pharmacological diagnosis. The man who comes in suffering from heart palpitations who's just lost his wife and is under incredible stress and tension. Jesus never appeared rushed when he dealt with people. Now, one of the great challenges of my life as a busy professional, and maybe one of the challenges of yours, is the pressure on me to do increasingly more in ever shorter amounts of time. I notice that my work expands, but my day does not. And one of the things that I want God to teach me is how to focus, how to focus. It is so easy to be a multitask person with the cell phone in one hand, with the computer keys in your, uh, looking at your computer on your cell phone, trying to listen to your husband or wife as they talk. It is very, very difficult today to focus. Some time ago, I read part of the biography of John Kennedy by Pierre Salinger. And Salinger talks about Kennedy And he says, one thing about Kennedy is that he was a listener. And people would come into Kennedy's office when he was the president of the United States, and that Kennedy would give them his full, absolute attention. Kennedy would never tell them how much time he had. He might have seven minutes for a conversation. He might have 13 minutes. And it was all scripted ahead of time in that day, how much time Kennedy had. And Salinger said he would just lean on the end of his chair, hand under his chin, intently gazing into the eyes of the person talking, giving them total eye contact, asking intelligent questions, and then about 30 seconds before he had to leave, even if it were only seven and a half minutes, he'd look at his watch and say, oh, this conversation is going ever too quickly. I am so sorry. But, you know, I have another appointment in just a few minutes. I've been asking the Lord to help me to do that. To whatever time I have with a person to concentrate and to give them my full attention. In modern medicine today, that is very, very difficult. 
Just this last week, a young woman came into my office, and she had something incredibly important to talk to me about. And I was between appointments. I had about 20 minutes, and then I had another incredibly important appointment, and I had just come out of a number of appointments. And she said, can I spend time? Can I talk to you? I really need to talk to you. And I thought to myself, I'm going to be very honest with this young woman. And I said, look, I have, I've just come out of some very heavy appointments, and my mind's kind of weary, and I'm going into some appointments, but I will tell you what. If you can say to me what needs to be said and share this problem in the next 20 minutes, I'll guarantee you one thing. I will give you every ounce of my energy for 20 minutes. But if you go beyond 20 minutes, unfortunately, I have another appointment. You're going to lose me. She said, Mark, you, I can do this in 15 minutes. I said, I will give you all of my attention for the next 15 minutes. In the ministry of Christ... He was never too rushed to give people his attention. Suffering people were not merely a statistic. Jesus inspired the hopeless with hope. One of the stories that illustrates Jesus giving the hopeless hope is in John chapter 5. When we study the life of Jesus, we see that there was an overruling purpose in the life of the great physician, redemption we see that there was a bounding compassion that flowed from Jesus. John chapter 5. After this, there was a feast of the Jews, and Jesus went up to Jerusalem. Now, there is in Jerusalem by the sheep gate a pool, which is called in the Hebrew Bethesda, having five porches. Now, notice Bethesda. Beth always means sign of or house of. So you have Bethel in the Old Testament. Bethel is the place that Jacob met God. El is Bethel. El is Elohim for God. Beth is sign of. So Bethel is the house of God. And so Jacob meets God with his vision at Bethel, the house of God. Um, Bethlehem. Lehem is bread. Beth is a sign of our house of bread. Jesus, the bread of life, was born in the city of Bethlehem, the house of the baker. Beth Seda. Beth Seda. Seda is a fish. Beth is house of fish. So Bethsaida is a fishing village by Galilee, and Jesus called Peter and John to be the fishers of men at the fishing village Bethsaida. Beth-Ezda. Ezda is mercy. Beth is house of mercy. Imagine this scene. There are helpless sufferers lying on the ground, 300, 400, 500 of them. They're lying around a pool. This is a human garbage dump. It is a place where the most hopeless cases are taken. Here are the battered and the bruised. Here are the sick and the suffering. Here are the disease-ridden, discouraged men and women. They have blind eyes. Their matter-encrusted eyes are oozing over with pus as flies and other vermin light on their eyes. Here are men and women that have not had a shower, not have a bath for year after year after year. Their long hair and their Tattered garments are smelly and they stink. Here is a human garbage dump. Here is a crowd of hopeless humanity. And Jesus walks among the crowd of hopeless humanity. And as he walks among them, that place becomes Beth Ezda. It becomes the house of mercy. It becomes the house of grace. And Jesus sees one man. That man is found in John chapter 5, verse 5. Now, a certain man was there who had an infirmity 38 years. 38 years. 
The sun rose over Jerusalem, but it didn't rise in his life. He saw a man walking with his son and their sheep to the marketplace because this was right by the marketplace. And he wished he could walk with his son to that marketplace. He saw children playing in the streets with their grandpas. And oh, how he wished he had a grandson that he could put on his knee and bounce him. He saw lovers walking hand in hand. And he remembered that day when he walked with his wife hand in hand, but no more now. His body was broken and battered. He was suffering and near death. He was there for 38 years. Now, 38 years is a long, long, long time. Have you seen patients that have suffered day in and day out, week in and week out, month in and month out for 38 years? This man was hopeless, but the Bible says, that Jesus said to him, do you want to be made well? And the man says, I don't have anybody that can put me into the pool. In fact, there was a superstition that an angel came down and stirred the water. But every time this man moved toward the pool, others who were more alert and more agile stepped over him and they crushed him. And Jesus said, rise and take up your bed and walk. And he did. Now, there is something that amazes me about this story. Ellen White comments on it. And I was shocked when I read it. Because I think that if I knew what Jesus knew when he went up to that man, I would have treated him differently. Desire of Ages, page 202. But the Savior saw one case of supreme wretchedness. This man was supremely wretched. It was that of a man who had been a helpless cripple for 38 years. His disease, now don't miss this, his disease was in a great degree, not in a little degree, was in a great degree the result of his own sin. And, he was looked, and it was looked upon as a judgment from God. Evidently, this man was well-known. He lived a profligate, disobedient life of sin. And as the result of sin, he brought disease upon himself. Now, if Jesus... I was almost said if Jesus were an Adventist physician, but I don't want to say that. If Jesus were like some health-reforming Adventist, Jesus would have said to him, you know, I'd like to heal you, but I can't. And the reason I can't is because you brought this disease upon yourself. Had you been obedient to the laws of health, you wouldn't be in this situation. Jesus didn't talk to the man about the reason for his disease. Jesus did not say to the man, if you're obedient to the laws of health, and Jesus didn't give him a lecture on the eight natural remedies, drinking water, taking a walk, eating a good diet, etc., Jesus did not even talk to him about the confession of his sin ahead of time. Jesus did not allow the man's sin to get in the way of the man's healing. Because Jesus knew that love always comes before obedience. And if Jesus revealed his love to the man, the, love would, the man would fall in love with Christ and thus obey him. So it is not you obey him, then you love him. It's you love him and then you obey him. Just a few weeks ago, I was in one of the European countries and we were talking about miraculous healing. And I asked if anybody had any questions. And a lady raised her hand and here was her question. And I was rather shocked with it. This was a group of Adventist pastors and Bible instructors. And the lady raised her hand and said, Pastor Finley, I have a question. Yes. Should we pray for people who have violated the laws of health and brought disease upon themselves? Should we pray that God's grace would be manifest and heal them? And I asked the audience, what do you think? And at least half of that audience said, we shouldn't pray for these people 
because they brought diso- they were disobedient and they brought sickness upon themselves. Therefore, if we pray for them and God heals them, that will confirm them in the wrong course of action that they had. Jesus did not think that way. He had overabounding compassion. Jesus did not make a person's past life a condition for healing. He reached out compassionately. He reached out lovingly. He reached out kindly. He reached out in sensitivity to them. Jesus entered into the heart longings of others. To a woman who had six husbands, and with the, and the man she was living with was not her husband, whose heart was broken and bruised and discouraged, Jesus reached out in love and compassion. To a man shaking from head to toe with the palsy, who brought disease upon himself, Jesus reached out in compassion. To Peter, whose mother was dying of fever, Jesus reached out in compassion. I am convinced that if our hearts were overflowing with the compassion of Jesus, and we reached out in love like Jesus did, men and women would flock to the Savior because our loving is not conditional upon their behavior. Ninth volume of the Testimonies, page 189. If we would humble ourselves before God and be kind and courteous and tender-hearted and pitiful, there would be a hundred conversions to the truth where there is now only one. It wouldn't cost us any money. Don't have to advertise for that. If we were kind and compassionate and humble and tender-hearted and pitiful, there'd be a hundred conversions to the truth where there is now one. Let me tell you about Ode. Ode was 69 years old when he became a Christian. His name, Ode San, became a Christian in Korea. Ode San came from from a little island off the coast of Korea. He was illiterate. On his island, he never had the chance to go to school, couldn't read, couldn't write. And when he became a Christian on the mainland of Korea, he had a burden for his people. Lived on a little island, and there were probably four to five hundred people in this little island. So Ode San went back to the little island, illiterate, couldn't read, couldn't write. And when he got upon the island, he began to reveal God's love to the people there. Three months later, he sent a note to his mission headquarters. He could not write the note because he couldn't read or write, but he had one of his friends write it. And he, uh, the, the note said two words, come preach, come preach, Ode San. The note came back to the headquarters and the mission president read it. Come preach, Ode San. And they said, we know Ode. He is a godly man. He doesn't know much. He's a kind of a illiterate guy. But if Ode San says, come and preach, there must be a reason why. So they came out to that little island and they found 400 people ready to accept Jesus, the gospel, and be baptized. The mission president was amazed. He went to Ode San. He said, Ode, we've tried to reach this uh, island with missionaries for year after year after year. We couldn't reach them. What did you do? You can't read or write. And Ode San said, well, sir, when I got here, I looked for if anybody was sick on this island. And they said, there's an old man sick over there. And I just went and I cut his wood for him and I brought it into the little house to warm him up. I heated his water for him. I went and sat by his bed and held his hand and told him he was going to make it through his sickness. And a few days he got well. And then I said, who else is sick? And I went over here and over there. And in three months, I visited almost every house in the island. You know, somebody was always getting sick. And pretty soon I was well known among the island because I visited the sick. 
I was kind and compassionate and humble and loving to them. And I cared for them. And they said, oh, son, why do you do this? And he said, because of my Jesus. And they said, we want to know about that Jesus too. And there was a breakthrough in that island. Before Seventh-day Adventist ever had sanitariums, James and Ellen White opened their own home. And their home became a mini sanitarium. Ellen White tells that story in the Review and Herald, July 26, 1906. She says, The Lord gave me great light to be a medical missionary worker. I was to set an example to the church by taking the sick to my home and caring for them. This I have done. Before Seventh-day Adventists ever had a sanitarium, Ellen and James White were living in Corenberg in Australia, and they began taking the sick into their home. Now, they knew very little about medicine, but they knew how to love people. And they'd have a sick person in the parlor and a sick person in one bedroom and two or three sick people in another spare bedroom. And they'd have five, six, seven, eight sick people in their home. Now, Ellen White tells that story, and it's really remarkable when you see the selfless service, when you see the abounding compassion, when you see the care to walk in the footsteps of Jesus means I understand the overruling purpose of Christ, and that is that the healing of the soul is to be wedded with the healing of the body. To see patients as Jesus sees them is to see them with eyes of compassion, to have our hearts filled with overbounding compassion. Ellen White writes, she says, Before there were any sanitariums among us, my husband and I began a work in medical missionary lines. We would bring to our house cases that had been given up by the physicians to die. When we knew not what to do for them, we would pray to God most earnestly, and he would always send his blessing. He is the mighty healer, and he worked with us. We never had time or the opportunity to take a medical course. We never had time or opportunity, she says, to take the medical course. But we had success as we moved out in fear of God. We sought him for wisdom at every step. This gave us courage in our labor. Thus we combined prayer and labor. We used the simple water treatments and then tried to fasten the eyes of the patients on the great healer. We told them what, we, what he could do for them. If he can inspire the patients with hope, this is greatly to their advantage. Ellen White, with eyes of compassion, reached out in love to the sick around her. True medical missionaries do not treat people as things. They don't treat people as statistics. They don't treat people as some uh, commodity. They treat them with eyes of compassion. Their hearts weep with those that weep. And they embrace those that are hurt and bruised. And it's that love that touches their heart. Here's a little aside on the story of Ellen White. Long after Ellen White's death, you know, she died in 1915. Just after the Second World War in Australia, there was a great shortage of lumber, as there was a shortage of lumber and building material in many places because so much effort had gone into the war effort. The Seventh-day Adventists wanted to build a church in Cornenburg. And as they were working on that church, they, were, they could get no lumber. So one of the Adventist pastors, and this was 40 years after Ellen White took the sick in her home, 40 years later, one of our pastors and one of his elders was looking for, were looking for lumber. And they thought, if we can get a few scraps from each lumber yard, we can begin to piece this together, we can at least start, and so forth. So they went down to a lumber yard in Korenberg, and as they were talking to the elderly gentleman who was the owner of the lumber yard, he said, where are you from? They said, oh, up at the Seventh Adventist Church, up at Korenberg. He said, have you ever heard of Ellen White? And they smiled, and 
I said, certainly. I mean, she was here. We believe that she was especially inspired by God. He said, as a little boy, I watched her life. I played in the neighborhood where her home was. And Ellen and James White were loving, compassionate people. They took into their home the sick and the suffering. I am not a Seventh-day Adventist, but if you want to build a church and you have anything to do with that woman, I know that this is going to be a godly group of people that love this community, and this church is going to be better in the community. You don't have to go to one other lumber yard. I will give you all the lumber you need for your church. Day by day, week after week, month after month, Jesus, the living Christ, reached out to touch others in abounding compassion. To see patients through Jesus' eyes means we see them first, not merely as bodies, but we see the overruling and riding purpose of Jesus' life to win their souls for the kingdom. Second, to see patients through Jesus' eyes means that we see them through the eyes of abounding compassion and we pour our life out for them as Jesus did. Thirdly, to see patients through Jesus' eyes means that we will go to any length and make any sacrifice to see people well physically, mentally, and spiritually. We recognize that being a physician or being a dentist is not a profession, that it's a calling. The great physician did not simply give his time. He did not simply give his money. The great physician simply didn't give his energy. The great physician gave his life. Matthew chapter 20 and verse 28. The scripture says in Matthew 20 verse 28, just as the Son of Man did not come to be served, but to serve and to give his life a ransom for many. Jesus' ministry was not focused around titles or position or honor or fame. Jesus, the served of all, became the servant of all. Jesus, the Lord of all the universe, became the servant of all humanity. Jesus, the creator, stooped to minister to his creatures. Jesus, the one at whose feet angels bowed and sang, holy, 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 bowed at the dirty feet of his disciples and took a towel and washed their feet. His life was not lived to please himself, it was lived to please others. The spirit of the great physician is the spirit of self-sacrificing, loving service where our lives are poured out for others. Come follow the footsteps of a great medical missionary. Dr. David Livingston was probably the greatest man of his generation. I uh, have been to Livingston's grave in Westminster Abbey in London. And it's always a hallowed experience to go into Westminster Abbey. Buried in Westminster Abbey are kings and queens of England. But there is no grave that moves me more and touches me more than the great medical missionary to Africa, David Livingston. Livingston was a gospel preacher, medical missionary, African explorer. Livingston traveled 29,000 miles through the jungles of Africa. Florence Nightingale, the great missionary nurse, called Livingston the greatest man of her time. Livingston was born in Scotland in 1813. He was born of missionary parents. And his parents brought him up to have this vision for mission. 
And they would often quote him. Jesus said, go into all the world and preach the gospel. When David Livingston took the medical course, he took it for one reason. He wanted to become a medical missionary. Robert Moffat, who had been a missionary to Africa, was preaching one day in England. And David Livingston, a young physician, sat in Moffat's audience. And Moffat described Africa. And then Moffat said, early in the sunlight as the sun is risen across the jungles of Africa, leaving the dew sparkling like diamonds, I have seen the smoke of a thousand huts where never a missionary has put his feet. I have seen the smoke of village after village ascending into the heavens with not one missionary putting his feet there. Sitting in the audience was a young physician. And those words burned into his mind. The smoke of a thousand villages where a missionary has never put his feet. He said, I will put my feet in those. I will go. I will map out the villages of Africa. I will go and cut pathways through the jungle. I will go and establish mission stations. I cannot sit still in the comfortable convenience of England. I cannot sit still in the, with the disease of affluence eating away at my heart and soul. I must go. Two weeks after he heard Moffat preach, he was on a boat heading for Africa. David Livingston got malaria 29 times. Often he walked hundreds of miles through the jungles, feet blistered, intestinal parasites. Once he was lost without water for three days in the desert, the Kalahari Desert. Another time he went literally four or five days, hardly ate anything at all. He was many a time attacked by lions. He would go into primitive, savage villages and build a hut there, treat their medical needs of the people. He talks in his journal about one village that was that he went that was plagued by lions, and the lions would come in and eat the cattle, and they would come in, and the villagers were so frightened of them. And so Livingston got four or five natives around him, and he had his gun, and he said, I'm going to go out and shoot a lion. If I can shoot one, I'll scare the rest away. And he saw a lion crouched in the bush. He shot it once, he shot it twice, but the lion didn't die, and it rushed on him, jumped on him, put... Uh, Ten teeth marks in his shoulder, ripped apart his shoulder. Then the lion fell dead. Natives carried him back and patched up the wounds in his shoulder. David Livingston fought against the slave trade. He said there were times he saw thousands of slaves being taken to ships. And at times he would go with his gun and the slave traders, knowing who he was, would flee. And he would cut the chains on the slaves. Livingston poured out his life. He was often sick. He was more often sick than not. One day, he traversed into the middle of the jungles and nobody heard from him for almost five years. Five years. They thought he was dead until one of the wealthy patrons in England said to Stanley, he said, Stanley, I don't believe uh, Livingston is dead. He's in the jungles ministering to the natives. He's probably weak. He's probably run out of food. Go find him. And that's when Stanley came to Livingston, found him in the middle of the jungles. He got word from this native and that native. And here, Stanley was in his hut. He had run out of food, run out of supplies. And in the providence of God, Stanley came at that time. Stanley came to him. And the native said, another white man is in the jungle. They were amazed. And Stanley came to Livingston and he said, Dr. Livingston, I presume. They worked together for months and Livingston was restored to health. Livingston wrote these words, God had only one son, 
And he was a missionary and a physician. A poor, poor imitation I am of him. But in his service I wish to live. And in it I wish to die. David Livingston gave his life. He married Robert Moffat's daughter. He paid a price. She traveled with him for years, over 15 years, throughout Africa. Livingston had a number of children, three children. His wife died because of the complications from a disease in Africa, and his son died. When Livingston's wife died, he wrote these words, It was the first heavy stroke I've ever suffered in my life, and it's taken away my strength. I wept over her who well deserved my tears. I loved her when I married her, and the longer I lived with her, the more that I loved her. He lost his wife in the jungles of Africa. He lost his children. In the modern affluence of 21st century society, we think it's a sacrifice when the fuse blows on the jacuzzi and the water isn't warm and we can't use it anymore. In the modern, sophisticated, materialistic 21st century, the disease of affluence has bitten even us. And to us, sacrifice is often an unknown word. But to be a medical missionary means to walk in the footsteps of the one who gave his all. Means to walk in the footsteps of the one that was nailed to a cross and with blood running down his hands and a crown of thorns upon his head and a spear wound in his side, he cries from an old rugged cross, Father, into your hands I commend my spirit or my life. To walk in the footsteps of Jesus, the great medical missionary, means at times to sacrifice our wishes for his. It means at times that our desires are secondary to his. It means at times that we will put aside things that we want to do, that even we could do, that we put aside the good for the best. We put aside the ordinary for the extraordinary. We put aside the mundane for the spiritual. We put aside the earthly for the eternal. David Livingston wrote in his journal, I will place no value on anything I do or anything I possess except it be in relation to the cause of Christ. I will place no value on anything I do or anything I possess except it be in relation to the cause of Christ. Will you today walk in the footsteps of the great physician? with the overruling purpose of your life to be to touch somebody for the kingdom of God? Will you walk in the footsteps of the great physician, not judging the people that God brings into your path, but with, over, with abounding compassion reaching out to them in love? Will you let everything you do be governed by the cross of Christ and the cause of Christ? Will you let your life be guided by the overruling purpose of seeing people one to the kingdom of God? Will you bound with compassion over lost people without judging but ministering in love? Will you make your wishes secondary to the cause of Christ, living sacrificially, walking in the footsteps of Jesus? If you will, you will be a true medical missionary. Everything else is a cheap imitation. 
Everything else is a counterfeit. Jesus appeals to you today to walk in his footsteps in a mission of salvation. If you do, one day on streets of gold, in a place called glory, in a land called heaven, somebody's going to walk down those streets and throw their arms around you and with tears running down their face, look in your eyes and say, Doc, thank you so much. You prayed for me in your office. When I gave up hope, you restored it to my soul. When I was about to give up, you took time with me. In fact, Doc, even after office hours, you drove to my house and you opened the word of God. And my heart was touched and my life has changed. And I'm here because of you. The true medical missionary reaches out in love because Jesus reached out in love. Let's pray together. Father, we thank you that Jesus, the true medical missionary, inspires us to be more than we are. He inspires us to lift our vision from what is to what can be. Father, may the purpose of his life be the purpose of our life. May his compassion be our compassion. May his love be our love. And may we reach out in sacrificial love to touch others with his grace. And may souls be one for his kingdom in Jesus' name.